Hey, before we get into this episode today, I just wanted to let you know that we would greatly appreciate if you liked, subscribed, left a review, five stars, five testicles, whatever you want to call them on this podcast. That will help this podcast rank higher in search results so that in the future, anybody who's searching for resources when they've just been diagnosed or have just become a survivor or is a caregiver, they can find this podcast more easily and listen to your stories. Thank you so much. And let's get into the episode. The stories shared on It Takes Balls are unique to the individual sharing. Always speak with your trusted medical provider for treatment options specific to you. Welcome back to It Takes Balls, presented by Testicular Cancer Awareness Foundation. We're kicking off year two of the podcast with quite a bang. We've got um, Dr. Will Flannery here. He's an ophthalmologist, a doctor of face balls, if you will. Uh, you might know him. <laughs> you might know him better as Dr. Glockum Flecken on TikTok and all social media. He's got just about probably when this airs, two million TikTok followers over 500,000 subscribers and followers on YouTube and Twitter. So kind of a big deal. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So among all those accolades that you have, the one that we have in common (laughs) that's relevant to this podcast is that you are a testicular cancer survivor. That's right. Had it a a couple different times. Uh, So the first time was way back in med school. It's been, what year is that? was like 2011. I think. Oh, wow. So it seems like, it seems like this is, you know, this is a disease that happens to people when they're in their prime of their life. I mean, med school, that's a big, Mm -hmm. that's a big deal. Yeah, it was a, you know, I, obviously it comes out of nowhere. Whenever you're young and you have cancer, it's, it's like the last thing you ever think is going to happen to you. Right. Um, You have this sense of invincibility whenever you're in your twenties. And then all of a sudden you have this disease that you associate with people who are, you know, three times your age. So it's a, it's a tough pill to swallow. And, um, so it's, you know, fortunately I had, I had a lot of good people around me. I was, uh, you know, I was married at the time and actually we had a kid at the time too, which made it a little bit easier, but also a little harder, you know, to, to, to kind of face that, this, that new challenge in life. Yeah. Take me back to, um, when you were diagnosed, having a kid being in med school, I mean, those are already things that are very stressing. Yeah. Fortunately, I, I, I knew enough of medicine to know that it, you know, the chances were good that I'll be okay. Um, but, uh, you know, I, and I knew enough about medicine to know, that my testicle like wasn't supposed to divide into like two testicles. Like I had this giant lump on my ball and was like, what the hell is going on? I know this isn't normal. So, so I went and got checked out and it all happened very quickly in terms of getting an ultrasound, getting diagnosed, getting set up for surgery. I was at uh, Dartmouth, which is where I went to med school. So I was in New Hampshire. So I was at the hospital system there. And they just moved me through. It was just very quick, like within two days. I think it was, yeah, within within definitely less than a week, I was in the operating room having surgery. So it's all happened very quickly. So you said New Hampshire, and you're in Oregon now, right? Yeah, yeah. Is that where your, like, family is from? I know you were married with a kid. Yeah, and we, you know, medicine just takes you all over the place. So yeah, I grew up in Texas, but then I went out to uh, Dartmouth, but my wife was actually going to grad school out there. We were dating in college in Texas at the time. And she told me that she was going to go to Dartmouth for grad school. 
And I was like, oh, that's an easy school to get into. Great. I'll just apply to Dartmouth. And, uh, but eventually they let me in. I just wrote enough letters and annoyed them enough that they, they accepted me. And, um, and then we slowly have moved our way out West because her family lives in Oregon. So that's how we ended up out in, in Portland. Um, but, uh, you know, we spent uh, about five years. Yeah. in in New Hampshire and we are not East coast people. I didn't grow up with snow and I, I definitely saw enough of it <laughs> to last me the rest of my life. So talk to me about, um, when you were, when you had your orchiectomy, I mean, how did that kind of like the mm-hmm. recovery and the surgery, how did that all play into your schedule with, you know, I, I imagine you were a busy guy at the time. Yeah. Yeah. I was, um, I mean, it, all things considered, it actually came at a, at a pretty good time in my life. I was right at the end of my third year of med school, entering into my fourth year of med school. And I was on a five-year track. And so I actually had a lot of flexible time to recover, which, which made it easier. It would have been a lot harder. And it was a lot harder the second time, which I'm sure we'll get to. But um, the first time around, I, I was able to have surgery. And, you know, I, I think I had like a full month before I had to, to do anything. And, but it's, you know, it's a, it's a pretty minimally invasive surgery, you know, the way they do it now, they just make a little inguinal incision, you know, go in remove it. And, um, uh, you know, you can't use your, your stomach muscles very well for like, you know, a couple of weeks. Um, and so, you know, my wife really enjoyed waiting on me hand and foot and, you know, doing everything I asked. And eventually I had to make it up to her, but you know, <laughs> she like, she gave me a pass on account of the cancer. So yeah. yeah, that's fair. Um, all right. So as people listening to this may know, you're famous on social media for comedy. So I read on your website that comedy was not something that was new to you at the time of your diagnosis. You'd been doing it for a while. So how did that kind mm-hmm. of play into how you handled it? Yeah, I started doing stand up, um, just an amateur stand up, going to open mics uh, down in Houston uh, in high school, actually. And, uh, I continued that through college and into med school. And when I got diagnosed, you know, it was, I had spent the first couple of years of med school still doing comedy, making a very tiny amount of money. I think one time I made like $30 and it was a a huge deal. It was like the first time I'd gotten paid. It basically just like paid my bar tab. Um, (laughs) But, uh, but so I was, I was getting a little bit of success. It was very exciting. But then med school really got in the way of, of comedy. And so for about a year, I had gone away from doing stand-up and I was doing some comedy writing, but wasn't really performing in front of an audience. And then the um, the diagnosis happened. And it was, it was interesting because it was the first time I felt this. I felt this urge to like get back out in front of an audience and talk about this and make jokes. I was, I found myself just writing. I would just start writing material, making fun of the cancer, making fun of the fact that I'm a med student. I had cancer and I'm in an operating, I'm in a waiting room with people in their sixties. And, you know, it's just all these, these little moments that you have in when you get a diagnosis like this and when you're, when you're, you're going to appointments and all these little new experiences that, um, I just, uh, I found so humorous at times and, um, and you know, there's always, you know, I think comedy within tragedy. And, and so I, I was writing all this material and 
I felt that urge to get back out in front of an audience. So I started doing open mics again and uh, talking about the cancer diagnosis. And uh, um, it, it helped me to, to be able to deal with this stress in my life. Really the only way I've ever dealt with stress, which is making jokes about it. And so it uh, just got me back out to performing. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Comedy was kind of something that I used as well, but not nearly on the yeah. level you, I wasn't doing stand up. <laughs> it's uh, you know, it, it's scary uh, to, to get out there and, and just try to make an audience of people you've never met before laugh. In fact, you know, now that I have this Glock and Flecken thing, when I go and, and perform or give talks, it's, it's like an, the audience knows me. Like they know who I am. They, you know, I've been brought into to this conference or event or whatever. And, uh, and so that's easy. It's whenever you're doing it in front of an audience that has no idea who you are, they've never seen you before. And you got to try to make them laugh, <laughs> which is what stand up comics do, especially people just starting out. That's what they do all the time. So it's, I, I haven't felt that kind of fear and also excitement, um, uh, that, that to that level in a while because it's just it's just it's different now but back when i was doing it as an amateur it was uh it was exciting and also really scary <laughs> all right so you mentioned um you mentioned you were you had kind of the medical knowledge when you were diagnosed uh you knew it was going to mm -hmm. be sort of an easier road than some other illnesses you could have gotten um were you at all ever concerned about mortality or you kind of knew that? You know, I never really was. Um, I really, that, that first, the first time I had, I got cancer. It, it was a relatively straightforward recovery. And, um, you know, it, it was, it was dealing with just the idea that I had cancer, that I, I am a cancer patient, that that was the biggest hurdle for me to overcome that first time. So I, I never really had thoughts of like, I, I might die from this. I might, you know, or I'm disfigured or, you know, cause I was, you know, it just, that wasn't really a concern for me. It was just that, that psychological hurdle of, okay, I'm no longer this healthy person who can go and get life insurance anytime they wanted to. Now I have to deal with this. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's jump ahead. I guess it's about five years later. Mm -hmm. Were you at yeah, all? Four years. Four, four years. years. Yeah. Were you at all concerned about recurrence or, I mean, it was, it, it's a very no. low chance. No, I, I was not uh, even thinking about that. I had, I had put this really behind me and I wasn't, I wasn't on any, you know, testosterone at that point. And I was still going in like, I wasn't really good about keeping up with my surveillance. <laughs> so it was part of what made that hard is because I was every, every, I, I had like, I had moved twice in the past four years. And so like reestablishing with an oncologist. And um, so I wasn't really good at, at, at keeping up with the, um, the surveillance uh, scans and everything I needed to do, but I was still going, you know, I had an oncologist where I was. And so, but I, you know, I, I didn't think about it. And you were what one stage one before I was stage one. The first time was stage one, a seminoma. So it was the best of the best, you know, the best, of that, you know, the best type of testicular cancer you could possibly get. Yeah. <laughs> 
And then the second time, what stage were you? Second time was stage 1B seminoma. Okay. So still very favorable. But that second time, and at this point I was in residency, so much busier. I was entering my final year of residency, looking forward to finally being done with, you know, um, medical education and training and getting my, you know, my grown up job in medicine and, uh, looking at practices that I'd be joining and all this stuff. And, um, and then out of the blue, I, I, all of a sudden I feel this lump in my other testicle. I was like, Oh, I've, I've been through this, but I know what this is. This is not good. And, um, I tried to convince myself that it was nothing. I was just, I was just palpating my epididymis or, you know, you, you, you come up with these ways of like, trying to rationalize what this abnormality that you're feeling or, Mm -hmm. and, um, but I, I, I went in and I, I, I actually went in on my lunch break, uh, to the, uh, and I didn't think to just take the day off and to go and get, you know, diagnosed with cancer. I just did it on my lunch break, which is not a good idea. You should just take the day off if you think you have cancer and get it checked out. But, um, I, I went in and was very easily quickly diagnosed with an ultrasound. And, um, that second time around was just much more difficult, you know, cause I had a lot of questions I had to answer, you know, were, were we done having kids at that point? Cause I was now facing the prospect of losing my other testicle. And we had, fortunately we had two kids at, at that point. So, you know, do I need to bank sperm? Uh, was hormone replacement therapy going to be like, how much is all this going to cost? Do I need to postpone residencies? Like all these things that I didn't even think about the first time around, but all of a sudden I had to. Yeah. Second time. What, so what age was your first child at this, at this point, were they aware of what was going on? Yeah. My oldest, um, at that time was five and she, she knew my youngest was just barely one. Um, my oldest, you know, we, we told him like, you know, daddy's sick and, but he's going to get, you know, surgery and he's going to be all better. And, and so, you know, we, we, we presented it to them in, in age appropriate ways, you know, um, and you know, they were fine. That that was, uh, it was tough. It's tougher the older they get, like when they can really start to understand you know, the nature of things, but they were still pretty young at that point. Yeah. In regards to some of the questions that you had, like about banking sperm and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's talk about that. Did you bank sperm and did you, have I to- did. Uh, yeah, I did. And let me, let me tell you something, anybody listening to this, uh, if you, if you have are in the, are in the position where you need to bank sperm or you want to bank sperm, um, take the day off from work. That's, <laughs> Just gonna just gonna throw that out there. It's a it's a strange experience, especially uh, as someone who worked in the hospital where I went to bank sperm to like be at your place of work, go and bank sperm, and then go back to work like an hour later. Just a very strange uh, <laughs> uh, situation I found myself in. But I went and I did it, and um, just in case we had decided that we wanted to, you know, have another kid, uh, and then I, you know, it's an expensive process. It is. It's like, I can't remember exactly how much it is, but it's probably, I think it was every six months, it was about 500 bucks or something. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's a significant cost to bank sperm. And, um, but we did it probably for about four years. 
before we decided hey, our family's complete, you know, we don't, we don't need to, to do this anymore. And then, um, whenever you get rid of your, uh, of your, um, semen sample, they, one interesting thing is they make you, uh, have a notary. Yeah, like you have to have the form notarized to, to destroy the sample. And so I like went to like FedEx and <laughs> met this, whoever's working there is like, Hey, can you help me get rid of my uh, semen sample? <laughs> Do you mind? Just uh, that's another one. Just one of those, uh, strange things, you know, that come, that comes with medical care. And there's so many little things like that, right. That you just like never thought you'd have to have a conversation about <laughs> Yeah, I had to do something similar. Mine's still in storage, but the place, the clinic where I did mine is closing down. So they're like shipping it to somewhere <laughs> off site. So I had to, I had yeah. to get a notary, which luckily my aunt is a notary, but she had to sign <laughs> it and take it. And in there. also there are certain things you don't even think about. Like they would ask me, okay, do you want to, to split this up into two different samples to go on two different trucks? Just in case like the first truck drives off a cliff. Oh my God. <laughs> No, like it's stuff like that. that. It's like, and it's going to, it would be an extra, you know, $150 to do that. Like, I don't know, I guess. What happens if they both don't, go off? Yeah. Don't, don't drive off a cliff. I don't know. <laughs> All right. What about, um, I mean, you mentioned, you touched on your scheduling. I know that you said earlier it was going to be a little bit more difficult at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It, um, it ended up being okay just because it was such an early stage uh, you know, I, we had talked about with the, I talked about with the urologist doing like a testicle sparing surgery, but once the, I, I went ahead and went against that because there was a pretty high chance, about a 50, 50 chance they'd have to take the rest of it out anyway. And, um, it turns out that would have been the case. So because it was a one B, there was some lymphatic invasion of the tumor, um, that, uh, that was the best decision. Uh, and recovery was the same as it was, you know, the second, the first time around, uh, it was the testosterone, you know, getting, getting that going, figuring, getting, you know, getting insurance to cover it, which is something I, I am still, you know, having to deal with, you know, and, and everybody who's on testosterone has to deal with that, you know, every month it's like getting an answer con- technically a, a controlled substance, uh, you know, so you can't get it at, that's you have to get it just at certain intervals and you know, it's a mess. It's, I could go on and on about, you know, t- the insurance issues with testosterone. Yeah. I think you're the first one I've talked to on this podcast. That's had actually both testicles removed. And so yeah. if any insight you could give about the testosterone would be great. And I mean, you've got a great beard, yeah. so it's not stopping you from growing <laughs> facial hair. No, it's, it's, you know, I'm, I'm doing okay. But what I didn't realize, and I encourage you, anybody listening that if you've had one testicle removed, um, you know, I was told by the urologist, like, it's fine. Like you, you have what the, your remaining testicle will make all the testosterone you need. And so I didn't get my testosterone level checked for a long time. And looking back on it, I think I was low. I think I was, I was low for a long time. I just, I, I, and I always chalked it up to, to being in medicine, being a doctor and tired all the time, a little grouchy. But now I'm thinking now that I've gotten on better versions of it, which I'll talk about in a second, I, 
I, I think I was low. And, and so I encourage everybody, even if you have one testicle, like still like ask for your testosterone to be checked just to make sure you're in the normal range. Mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously once I had the other one removed, I had to get on testosterone. So, and I've been on all pretty much every single kind that's out there. So I started on the gel, the Andrew gel or whatever it's called. And I hated that. It's awful. It's greasy. It's, you know, putting it on every day, having to deal with exposure issues. Where you know, are you putting you it on? Uh, you can put it on anywhere, any exposed skin, um, you know, your shoulder. I, I put it on my shoulder and upper back and, uh, but you can't have, you know, you, especially if you have young kids, uh, girls in particular, my wife, you know, you don't want them touching it cause it could, you could transfer it to them. Hmm. And so, um, and so I had to like not touch anybody or be around them for like 20 minutes after I put it on. And it was just, it was really a hassle, but I did that for a few months and just hated it. And, uh, and it was also, uh, fairly expensive to do that. Um, and so I, pretty quickly went to injections, um, which I had been doing probably for about three years of weekly injections. And it's cheap. It's the, it's the, it's the version that the insurance companies want you to do, uh, (laughs) because it's cheap. And so, and I, for a long time, I didn't really think about it. I was like, okay, well, I feel better, you know, having the injections versus the, the gel but I was still having lots of mood swings. And this is going for, you know, a couple of years and, um, you know, just feeling tired at the end of the week, knowing I could tell when my levels of testosterone were getting low. And it wasn't until I actually this, like about a year ago, I went to a conference, a urology conference to speak. I was a, a, one of the, the keynote speaker for the conference. So I was talking to all these urologists and I was telling them about my experiences. They're like, what are you doing on these injections? You got to get on. There's so many better options. It's like, really? I haven't even thought about it. <laughs> and so I started looking, looking into it. And there are there. I, I was on this. Um, so I went, I got established with a urologist uh, in Portland, which I hadn't seen. I, I just assumed they're the ones that just take the testicle out. They don't, they don't, you know, see you for this type of thing. I don't have testicles anymore. Why am I seeing a urologist? Um, but they're the perfect, I think they're the perfect people to, to, to engage this conversation with and to help to have manage. I've had an endocrinologist manage my testosterone. I've had a primary care doctor manage it. This is the most comfortable I felt with somebody managing my levels of testosterone and talking about the different options. And so um, I should have gone to a urologist a long time ago for it. Um, and so uh, uh, it's, um, and so I, after talking to my urologist, they got me on uh, first this as a stopgap measure, uh, this version called Zyostead. It's like a subcutaneous one. So it's like a little pin, kind of like an EpiPen kind of thing. It worked out pretty well, but then um, what I'm on now, actually, it was just today that I got this put in, is something called Testapel, hmm. which is, uh, it's like the one of the newer options where they in, they inject um, a series of little beads that will slowly release testosterone over four to six months. Wow. Yeah, yeah, and it was a pain in the ass getting insurance to cover it, too. Like I can't tell you how many times I had to say, look, I don't make any testosterone. I don't have any. And I, these other options are not good. 
and it was it was just it's a huge huge pain and so um yeah it's uh you know the insurance companies their first their their first instinct is to just reject immediately they'll reject mm-hmm. like any of these new medications and then you have to prove to them that that they should cover it for you and it's just kind of the way it is yeah it's insane um mm-hmm. so you are a huge success in um social media and in, and being a doctor and everything i mean i think that's important for people to see that there's there can be you know long successful lasting life after a testicular cancer diagnosis mm-hmm. which you know cuz testicular cancer as we've talked about on this podcast uh, in previous episodes is mostly a disease of survivors um mm-hmm. do you think that um your experiences with testicular cancer and if you want to talk about your other health scare at all uh in 2020 mm-hmm. do you think that that has informed uh how you treat your patients and then your your character online yeah. um yeah i i'd say well, one thing it's made me realize was how how isolating it is as a young adult with cancer. And so I got involved in an organization called First Descents, which is a, they're a nonprofit that supports young adults impacted by cancer. Uh, and so it's it's really it's tied me into that community, which has helped me a lot. But in my in my career as a physician, you know, as an ophthalmologist, I see mostly people who are, who are older in their you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Um, and one thing it's helped me is mostly on the the insurance side of things. Now, because I've had I have that experience as a patient having to deal with our healthcare system, uh, I I talk to my patients more about that side of things. And I wasn't doing that before all the problems I've had with, with my medical issues and, um, uh, and dealing with insurance. So I'm, I'm more, more cognizant of that, that difficulty. And it's a, it's a huge, having to deal with insurance is a huge um, mental and psychological drain on, on patients. And so it's something that we as physicians should, should be willing and able to talk about more because it's a huge as a significant stressor in people's lives. And what you're alluding to the, the um, medical issue I had in 2020 was I had a cardiac arrest, totally unrelated. I just have like every four years I try to die basically. <laughs> uh, and my wife is sick of it. I'll tell you. Um, but I had a, a, a ventricular fibrillation uh, cardiac arrest you still don't know why it happened. Uh, my heart is otherwise totally fine now. I have a defibrillator, but uh, my wife woke up, heard me um, gasping for breath, which is a which was a sign of cardiac arrest, and oh she God. did ch- chest compressions on me uh, for about ten minutes and saved my life. Jeez, yeah. Is she? Is that something she does professionally? Is no, no. She's in. She's in uh, education. She's in marketing, and so. Uh, <laughs> So she, she called 911 and they walked her through how to do CPR and, and she did it very well her first time, first time around. Oh my God. So, all right. Well, how, yeah. like, how has this all informed? And, you know, we, we talked about, you did the stand up comedy before you've taken this, this, these things that have happened to you and, and your comedy love for comedy and made this online character that has made you a huge success. And now you have this 
platform where you raise awareness of issues like insurance and last November you did a men's health thing and that had, you know, almost 2 million views. Talk about that. Yeah, I think, um, one thing I really like to do with my, with my content is find some of the more overlooked parts of healthcare and the medical field in general. Um, something that people maybe don't think about or have never heard about, uh, and then shine light on that. And whether it's health insurance or academic publishing or, or even just conflicts between different specialties within medicine. And one thing I think I'm really good at is boiling down those conflicts or those ideas into content that is accessible to a general audience. And so I think that's why the content, the videos that I make have in my, my platform has grown so much is because it is accessible to people outside of medicine. And so, um, um, and, and it's, it's fun to be able to, to, you know, teach people in a, in a funny, in a, com in a comedic way, uh, about some of these issues, uh, in, in us healthcare in, in particular. Um, because if you can make someone laugh at a topic, it's, you're, you're going to get much farther reach. You know, people are more likely to share it and show their friends if it, if it's funny, if it makes them laugh. And so, and then the ideas underlying that comedy, you know, obviously travel with it. And so, and so you get more spread of those ideas. Yeah. And so that's, it's just, it's fun to do. It's fun to be able to use that platform for, for a reason other than just making people laugh. Well, this, a lot of my videos are just, that's all they are. There's just comedy, right? Uh, it's just fun to give people a laugh at the end of a hard day in medicine. Um, but then it's, it feels better in some ways to be able to, to have a message underneath it. Yeah. I don't remember exactly when it was, it was sometime last year, I think before, at least I knew that you were a testicular cancer survivor. My fian now fiance at the time of recording, when this comes out, she'll be my wife, um, was in nursing school and she just found you organically and has followed you and thinks you're hilarious. <laughs> so she was excited <laughs> about this interview. Awesome. Um, but yeah, so when you go to these conferences, as you've mentioned, I mean, you were talking mm -hmm. about the, the testosterone and the insurance. Is this something that you're talking with other providers about to kind of, so they kind of see yeah. it from your perspective? Yeah, I frequently will, will talk, uh, to, um, medical audiences about my experience as a patient. Um, because that, especially, you know, some of the more unique, uh, you know, things that have happened to me with the cardiac arrest and then also dealing with, uh, you know, insurance from a patient side. Um, also with my wife, I've been doing a lot more talks and, and events, uh, having her come with me and we talk together because she has a perspective as a, uh, a, um, what we, you know, what you can consider a co-survivor, someone who, who has, um, experienced all that medical trauma along with me, even though I'm the one that had the medical event happen to, you know, she was right there experiencing all of that as well. And so there, these are different aspects of healthcare that physicians a lot of times don't personally experience. So I think it's really helpful to just talk about those things in a narrative format, telling my story, 
uh, getting those conversations started. Uh, and, um, and so that's, that's a lot of what I've been doing the last, you know, year and a half whenever I have time to, to travel for, you know, a, a couple of days to talk. That's great. Is that something that they yeah. teach in med school? Like kind of, I guess, bedside manner, is that a class or anything? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's certainly uh, developing those like patient physician relationships. Uh, but there's, there's just so many, so many things that, that, that come with firsthand experience that you're just, unless you experience it, you know, you're not really going to know and be able to connect on, on a, on a deeper level, um, either with patients or, or just, you know, as a human being, unless you've really experienced it. Yeah. Um, as we wrap this up, do you have any advice for anybody who might've just been diagnosed with testicular cancer and they've searched testicular cancer on Dr. Google and found this podcast? Um, well, I mentioned the testosterone. So that's one thing that, um, as you go through your recovery, you know, pay attention to that. Um, the physical recovery might be easy, uh, but, uh, it's the emotional and mental recovery that can take a little bit longer. And as I mentioned before, cancer, when you're young, is an isolating, lonely experience at times because you don't see anybody your own age around you. And so what helped me a lot was finding a group, finding that, that organization I mentioned, First Descents is one I've, there's a lot of them though, that really what they do is they help bring young adults impacted by cancer together uh, to have this shared experience, not just testicular cancer, but just any type of cancer. And that, you know, and really it's just talking to people who have, even though they may have a different type of cancer, you know, a lot of the experiences are the same. People have had chemotherapy, have had surgery, who've had changes to their bodies that, um, that you can just hear their experiences and talk about it. And so I think, it's, it's really powerful to be able to have a support network of people who have had some of those similar experiences who are roughly your age. So I encourage people to seek that out and it's hard, it's hard to do that. Um, but you know, you can, um, there, there, there's lots of options out there. So using Google, you can find them. <laughs> That's great <laughs> advice. And, uh, you mentioned you kind of worked your way west. Are there any providers who you encountered with your testicular cancer journey moving across the country that you want to shout out that anybody listening in those places could find? Yeah, the the oncologist I would say that I I spent the most time with was in at University of Iowa, where I went to residency. It was Dr. Zachariah, which I think he's still Yusuf Zachariah, and now I'm I'm uh, at a Northwest urology in Portland. And, uh, my urologist is, um, uh, Dr. Spettel, uh, Sarah Spettel, which uh, she's done a fantastic job. So it's a great practice. Lots of good doctors there. Yeah. Cool. Hey, thank you so much for being here. And, and if you're available next April, I think we'd, we'd love to have you at our, uh, in-person conference, uh, location TBD, but it'd be awesome if you could awesome. make it. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Dr. Will Flannery, a.k.a. Dr. Glockenflick, and have a great day. 
For more information and resources for your testicular cancer journey, visit testiculacancerawarenessfoundation.org. You can also follow us on social media at Testis Cancer. We're on Facebook at Testicular Cancer Awareness Foundation.